Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. My guest for this episode is Dr. A. Philip Brown, Graduate Program Director and Teacher of New Testament Greek, Biblical Hebrew, and a vast assortment of Bible and Theology classes at God's Bible School and College at Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks for taking time to speak with me, Dr. Brown. Thanks, David. I'm glad to be with you. So, well, first off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, beyond what I just said? Like, where are you from? Where do you go to school? What do you like to teach? Sure. I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. I grew up in Hope Sound, Florida, southeast Florida on the coast at Hope Sound Bible Academy and College. Did all my kindergarten through college there and then went back to Bob Jones University from 93 to 2002 to work on my master's and PhD. The PhD was Old Testament interpretation with a minor in New Testament and church history. I taught Greek both uh, first and second year Greek at the university to pay my way through. So that kind of got my feet solidly in both the Greek world and the Hebrew world. And I was hired to teach at God's Bible School and College in 2002 and have been there ever since. We started the graduate program in 2016 and are continuing to expand offerings, the most recent being this fall or this spring, I'm teaching Deuteronomy in Hebrew as a Hebrew exegesis class. What, what, are, your, uh, what are your favorite subjects to teach? What do you like to teach the most? Probably whatever I'm teaching right at that moment. That, that's a good way to be. It would be unfortunate to uh, have to slog your way through the <laughs> a number of your classes every semester. Well, so the, the reason I wanted to talk with you is um, you've been a professor that I've had in um, teaching Hebrew and, and Greek and a number of other subjects. And um, so the, the school that uh, that I've attended that I got my undergraduate in and I'm slowly chipping away at my master's uh, in is God's Bible School and College. And it's a fairly conservative school, conservative holiness, uh, Wesleyan, Armenian, which is not Armenian. I think I remember the first time I heard right. you referred to uh, that. I, I think you were talking about a, a girl that you almost married who was an Armenian, and I thought, well, that's interesting that she, he mentioned she was from Armenia. I wonder what the significance of that is to the story. But um, I learned later that that's uh, yeah, something else. But So I'm working through you know a book right now um, on this, this kind of recent but also not very recent trend in the church of trying to cut the New Testament off from the Old Testament to, to unhitch our Christian faith from the Hebrew Bible. And um, as I've been working on this, it keeps occurring to me that so much of um, this debate really centers around inspiration and how we define it. And mm-hmm. I mentioned that GBS is a, definitely more of a conservative school, so you guys hold to a pretty strong view of inspiration. I'd also spoken with uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who I found had also attended Bob Jones for a while, and he's... Um, not nearly as conservative. He has kind of a vaguer view of inspiration that sort of God looks at it and gives it the thumbs up when it's done. And so I, I kind of wanted to get a little bit of a, a spectrum from from people who would would say that inspiration is important um, to just get a sense of kind of different ways of looking at these issues um, and try to uh, I don't know develop some some guide some guidelines or some guardrails around this question so that we can be. Uh, true to what scripture says and also reasonable and logical uh, about our conclusions. So I guess maybe the first question I'd ask you would be, 
Um, how would you define inspiration when it comes to the Bible? Sure, that's a great question. Let me start by saying that uh, you don't have to be conservative to recognize that the Bible claims inspiration for itself and that it claims a particular type of inspiration. For example, Mir Sternberg, an Israeli scholar who does not believe that the scriptures are revelation from God, argues in his book, The Poetics of Biblical Literature, that the only way to properly read the Old Testament is to read it as though it is the Word of God because that's how it conceives of itself. So while it's true that there's historically been a great deal of debate about uh, the nature of inspiration and the implications of inspiration, oftentimes those debates have been driven by things other than what the text itself claims. And so if we just work with the textual claims themselves, then it's clear from passages like 2 Peter 1, 19-21 and 2 Timothy 3.16 that uh, persons like Paul and Peter in the New Testament regarded the scriptures, all scripture, all, every graphe is theopneustos, is God-breathed, or Peter saying that the holy men of old were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit as they uh, wrote what they wrote. And so I define inspiration as God's superintending the process of communicating his word so that the very words that God wanted written were in fact written by the human authors. That superintendence can take a variety of forms that we see witness to in the scriptures themselves, everything from dictation uh, which is what God did for Moses on the mountain after Moses had broken the first set of tablets, to uh, God superintending the author's vocabulary development, the author's thought process, perhaps even completely without uh, the author being aware that he was being superintended. Just for example, Caiaphas is inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak a truth, even though he rejects Jesus. So the process of inspiration does not require either the cooperation or even the awareness of the human who is being inspired for the message that God desires to communicate to be transmitted uh, with the degree of accuracy that God desires the message to have. I'm trying to think of where to go from there because there's a couple places I could go. I think one point or one question I guess I might ask because you spoke of dictation as a possibility and we see places where that does pop up. So my, my one question I wanted to ask you is um, I think Peter Enns makes this argument that, uh, you know, well, Exodus and Deuteronomy are both both claim to be inspired but give the same laws in different ways or, in, you know, argue. I think he argues maybe even contradictory ways. Um, so is that a challenge at all to inspiration? But I think I don't know if it may be more important to start by sort of saying, well, what about those places where you don't have dictation and you have a human element involved? Um, and does, does that human element um, make it less divine or less truth, truthful? And uh, kind of how do those things interact with each other? 
Well, so uh, we don't have to do a philosophical speculation about this. All we have to do is follow uh, the cues that God gives in the text. So let's just start, for example, with uh, the first non-written form of revelation that we know about, whereas God is uh, speaking from Mount Sinai to the Israelites. He uses uh, audio waves that were receivable by human ears, and the result was that that communication was understood by the recipients. They responded using language, and God initiates a covenant with them at Mount Sinai on the basis of this uh, audible human communication. So first point that I make is that a human language, while it is not perfect, is adequate to the task of communicating what God desires to communicate. Uh, the presence or the, the fact that we have human language being used in, does not necessarily or even likely introduce error or inaccuracy into communication. Now let's talk about uh, the, the text written with the finger of God that's handed to Moses. That text is uh, written in the language that Moses is able to read. So now God is not just using the audio, audible form of human la language. He's using the written form of human language. And he communicates uh, that in a way that is that requires the whole process of interpretation of language. That then becomes the standard, the covenant standard that's located in the in the Ark of the Covenant. But when Moses, under inspiration, repeats those Ten Commandments, he changes them both in small ways and in larger ways. Smaller ways, he adds some ands between commandments 6 through 10. Uh, he changes one of the words used in the thou shalt not covet to uh, thou shalt not uh, lust with passion. Uh, but larger, we actually see that the fourth commandment, the commandment about the Sabbath, is expanded to be to move from a remembrance of creation to a remembrance of redemption. So that teaches me two things. Number one, that when God says to Moses, you shall not add to or take away from my word, he did not mean that the, uh, the communication that God provided could not be built upon or expanded. But what he did mean was that uh, the people were not to change it from its original intent. Not change it in terms of uh, specific grammatical forms or the addition of this word or that word, but change its intent. So that introduces the interplay between surface structure and semantic structure. The surface structure has a degree of latitude in it. The semantic structure 
is such that God pronounces curses on people who change what he intends and uh, holds people accountable for saying things he didn't really say and pronounces the death penalty on people who put words in his mouth. So the, the ambiguity, the uh, potential challenge of interpretation is part of God's uh, God intends for that to be a part of the communication process itself. He actually exploits ambiguity at times intentionally, all of which is human, right? I mean, none of this is a language that God sends down from heaven, none of its vocabulary with glossary lists that come down from heaven. It's all human in the language, in the formation, in its change across time. And yet God says, the meaning that I communicated is immutable. And uh, anybody who changes that meaning has, in the language of Proverbs 30, verse 6, you know, they're essentially saying that there's something impure about my words. Now, my words are pure. There's, there's no need to add to, because if you do, you'll find that you're a liar. Gotcha. So, so uh, uh, a scribe who's copying the book of Revelation and adds an extra uh, uh, new to the name of John is not necessarily going to be cursed. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Or the scribe who accidentally left out the age of Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 1, uh, isn't cursed because he uh, took away from the word of God. You know, this is an accident of, that, that God is providentially allowed in the transmission of the text. But uh, that doesn't impair uh, the intended function of the text, which is, is the, the communicative function. Impair, impair might be too strong a word. It doesn't hinder uh, the intended communicative function of the text. Gotcha. So human language is, is always necessarily limited but that doesn't mean that god is not able to communicate what he wants to communicate with it just as uh you know we will often find that, that language uh is not perfect but but we can still communicate with each other and get things done and and you know build a house together <laughs> you know based on our understanding of common measurements and names for tools and things like that right and do, and do everything from ordinary conversations to highly complex technological communications with exacting specificity communicated across language barriers between, let's say, English and Chinese, and uh, not lose the, the accuracy, let alone the essential communication. Gotcha. So it seems that we, we you've kind of worked through inspiration as, as an idea, um, but what, what some of these folks are saying is they challenge, um, the old Testament in particular, although I think a lot of them would, would also have a lower view of inspiration for the new Testament, um, is that Jesus and the apostles saw the old Testament as less inspired in some way than the new, uh, that the words of Jesus are more inspired than the words of the old Testament prophets. And on one level, I, I can forgive them a misunderstanding because Jesus in places seems to correct something from the Old Testament or uh, amend it or change it in some way. So 
you know, unclean food regulations, temple sacrifices, and 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 probably the most. I mean, really, and I think the fact that this is probably the most extreme example I can come up with suggests that that there's not a lot of wind in these sails here. But this example of Jesus referring to this kind of no-fault divorce uh, idea as something that Moses gave you because your hearts were hard. And that, that I think, is pointed to as an example of the Old Testament being somehow less inspired um, or less less God's ideal, perhaps. Um, so in, in what senses are the New Te- is the New Testament um, correcting the Old Testament? Does, and, and does that in any sense suggest that the Old Testament is not inspired in some places, or is not God's, uh, I don't know, that God steps back and sort of says, well, I'm just going to let you guys take it from here, and then I'll come in and correct it later when Jesus comes back. Sure. So uh, to work my way into an answer to that question, let me start by saying the, the, the way that I know to avoid circularity in this discussion is to begin with the claims of Christ. And uh, so the short version of that, which could be extended a great deal, is that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed that he would rise from the dead three days after his death and that uh, adequate eyewitness, multiple eyewitness corroborative testimony justifies that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead and that his resurrection uh, substantiates his claim to be the son of God, and that as a follower of Jesus, that's foundational to my faith. I'm joining Paul in saying that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then the jig's up and we might as well uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, Having accepted the deity of Christ, uh, I then look at what Christ has to say about what he believed to find out what I should believe. And what I find Christ saying about the Old Testament is that scripture cannot be broken, that uh, he treats the Old Testament as uh, authoritative, even for what is eternal? How do I obtain eternal life? He points to the Old Testament. And yet he also claims that he has the right to speak in a editorial capacity. Now, uh, I put those two things together in this way, that since Christ is God and God inspired the Old Testament, He is the author of the Old Testament, and as the author of the Old Testament, he has the right to clarify his intention. He has the right to modify what he said prior to that, as long as what he's saying does not uh, contradict or undermine or subvert his essential moral character. And so, you know, the thing on uh, on uh, divorce because of the hardness of your heart is really not that hard. It's okay. So Jesus is saying, as the author of that text, I was 
limiting the extent of your sinfulness, even as I made accommodation for that sinfulness through Moses, but I'm now closing that window and saying that the only grounds that it's okay for divorce to happen would be immorality. Now, that's a contradiction only if the, the text in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 had some kind of universal assertion, like it will always be the case that you may divorce your wife if you find an ervat davar in her, a matter of nakedness. But there's no such universal uh, qualification. In fact, the law is framed in what we call casuistic form. It's case law. If this happens, here's what then happens. And the a case law is, in its very nature, circumscribed by the nature of the case. Jesus just articulates a... Uh, narrowing of that principle and saying, I permitted this then, I'm removing that permission. The same thing goes for clean and unclean. From Noah to Moses, both clean and unclean animals were expressly given as food for all human persons, Genesis chapter nine, 8 and 9. Um, and then at the time of Moses, God limits Israelites from eating unclean animals, but did not limit non-Israelites from eating them. And then in the New Testament, we see uh, the return to the pre-Mosaic permission for all foods to be eaten. Uh, that's, it's not even a, it's not even a problem. It's, it's just God as creator has the right to impose or remove uh, his will upon his creatures, provided that he's not in some way contradicting his own moral nature. And there's nothing inherently moral about whether you eat lobster or not. So the, the, the change in the economy of how uh, God expressed the walk with God through the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, which was all as Paul calls it, shadows, the body has come in Christ. That, that change is not contradiction, it's not undermining, it's uh, simply a, a movement from preparatory, anticipatory, to fulfillment and the ultimate end toward which those things were pointing. So, so we could maybe say, as the author of Hebrews does, that, that Jesus is better, for example, than the high priests and the, the, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices and the temple, without saying that God had nothing to do with those things. <laughs> well, you know, a definite yes to that, but we can also say that God intentionally uh, started somewhere different than Jesus. So the creation of tabernacle, temple, sacrifice, priesthood complex is itself a function of the divine will, a matter of revelation, and God intended to start with something that was not as good as where he was ultimately going. That's interesting. It, it, it seems that sometimes it's probably the fault of, of ultra-conservatives on this point, but 
it seems that sometimes people assume that for the Bible to be inspired or the Word of God, we can't have these kinds of gradations or, or complexity that you're speaking of, that inspiration, for example, requires that we see the Bible as, uh, to, to borrow a phrase that's used by some of these uh, kind of anti-Old Testament folks, that the Bible's flat, that you can pull something out of uh, Exodus or pull something out of Matthew and they're, you know, they have the same uh, significance necessarily uh, to your life or to your practice. Um, but but we don't we don't have to say that in order to say that the Old Testament is as inspired as the New Testament. Yeah, definitely. Amen to that. You know, so uh, I think Kevin Van Hooser does a very good job of articulating, you know, a thick reading of uh, what it means to talk about the text. And he talks about well-versed inerrancy as a literate understanding of the literal sense of the diverse literary forms that comprise scripture. And uh, his play on the word literary, with literate understanding, says that we have to be aware of genre differences. We have to be aware of the whole range of the use of language from affirmation of literal things through all types of figures and metaphors, hyperbole, sarcasm, um, you know, litotes, the, the whole range of figures are present that, that exist in human language God made use of to communicate his truth. And honestly, I don't think that uh, it's, it's difficulties in... Uh, understanding how it all fits together that makes people want to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. I think it's a profound misunderstanding of the New Covenant that inclines people to uh, say, we got this old, old Covenant stuff needs to be done away with. And... Uh, the New Covenant, as articulated by Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, implicitly involves the internalization of God's Torah on the hearts of God's people. And uh, any idea that there's somehow a significant disconnect is a misreading of Hebrews, it's a misreading of the apostles, it's a misreading of Jesus, and it's an egregious misreading one that none of the New Testament authors would even recognize if it were presented to them. Well, so setting that aside, um, just kind of the, the the question of inspiration and how those things fit together, there, there's kind of a practical uh, apologetic argument that folks like uh, Andy Stanley have made um, that the Old Testament is more challenging to modern scientific or ethical views than the New Testament, and that maybe we, we, we gain something in our defense of the faith and in our uh, evangelism by setting aside the Old Testament, and then anytime somebody brings up something in the Old Testament that's difficult, we say, well, we don't care about that, we're just focused on Jesus. Um, I mean, do you think... Uh, if, if we do, as, as Stanley suggests, and stick the New Testament in the front of the Bible and, and, and make the Old Testament an index or something, uh, or a footnote, um, do you think we gain anything? I mean, do you think that the, 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 the New Testament is easier to defend than the Old Testament for modern sensibilities? 
how is defending a resurrection easier than defending an exodus? Um, no, it's not easier to defend. Further, we don't gain something. We lose the entire context for understanding the New Testament properly. So, um, you know, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that in the last day scoffers will come saying, where is his coming? Now, you guys have been waiting for this for thousands of years. It's a waste of time. Uh, and they're willfully ignorant of what? Well, in Peter's mind, they're willfully ignorant of what the Old Testament says about the flood. Well, the flood contradicts modern scientific sensibilities. And yet Peter accepts what Genesis says, prima facie, and says that ignorance of what God did in the flood, willful ignorance, leads to uh, a lack of holiness in one's life because God's going to do again the same kind of a thing he did in Genesis 7. And that is, he's going to destroy the whole world, this time with fire rather than with water. So, as I look at the New Testament itself, it's only a kind of ignorance of the contents of the New Testament that it would allow somebody to say that it is more friendly to modern scientific and social sensibilities. Once you really understand all that the New Testament says, it is as antithetical, antithetical to uh, our contemporary culture, its scientism, its naturalism, its unwarranted uh, elevation of the human mind, as the Old Testament is. I think an example that, that comes to my mind is, you know, someone may have trouble as they go back to the Old Testament and read about the Canaanite conquest, but um, it, it, it seems to me that if there are any references in the Old Testament to hell, they're few and far between, whereas the New Testament seems to be chock full of them. Um, so that, that's, that's another, uh, perhaps another challenge to that, that notion that if we, if we get rid of the Old Testament, the New Testament makes it easy for us. Sure, um, yeah, that's a good example. So... Let's say that we do come across a passage in well, the Old Testament, or really even in the New Testament, uh, that we find troubling or confusing. Are, are there steps that you suggest to try to resolve that? And, and then let's say we don't resolve it through, uh, you know, methods of study and, and, and examination, and then we're left with this this troubling passage we don't know what to do with. What what do we what do we do then? Here's the process that I use personally. Uh, this isn't unique to me. This would be a characteristic of evangelicals um, historically. That is, the first thing we want to do is make sure we've understood the text in its context appropriately. So to understand the text, that's the proper use of textual criticism. Uh, the biblical languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. The appropriate use of secondary linguistic resources, translations, for Old and New Testaments. And then the whole set of hermeneutical tools that's involved in properly understanding a text. Uh, we deploy those in good faith that the biblical author, uh, specifically the divine author, uh, is 
not liable to self-contradiction. Uh, I don't have to posit the, uh, that the human authors are inerrant or infallible or incapable of contradiction. If I accept what God says about inspiration, he's the ultimate source of what's being said, that's being recognized as having divine authority. And so whatever he says is going to be coherent. That's my assumption. And if it seems to be incoherent to me, that means, number one, I have not properly understood it in terms of what it's actually saying. Or number two, I'm missing some background information that helps, would help me understand it, but it was not encoded or embedded in the text itself. Or number three, God doesn't intend for me to fully understand this thing. So uh, it's evident from apocalyptic literature in particular that God is intentionally obscure in clarifying details in apocalyptic imagery and that he doesn't intend for me as an interpreter to be able to make a connection between all the details that the uh, prophet was seeing and uh, that the intention he has for the text is to motivate a righteous and holy living and to provide a template which when he actually fulfills what he revealed will be it will be shown that, oh, yeah, sure enough, the image and the reality corresponded. I just couldn't have guessed that that's the way they're going to correspond. So there's a sense in which he uses uh, things that are difficult to understand, both to test our faith and to provide a, uh, a reinforcement for faith so that when what is predicted comes to pass, we can return to the word and say, yep, sure enough, just like he said it was, that's how it happened. Well, so so let's say we have an example of something like, uh, I mentioned that the Canaanite conquest. So let's say someone's reading through that and they, they've they've read all the all the defenses and all the, um, uh, you know, scholarly work on, on trying to explain it and, and, and how it, uh, th there's no ethical difficulty there. And at the end of that, study they still feel like i i i don't know what's going on here this just doesn't seem this doesn't seem like the uh you know the, the the loving god that i think i know or whatever um what 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 recourse does that person have okay so um I, there's a whole bunch of things that are going through my head all at the same time trying to decide which ones to say first uh, first thing I would say is uh, the rule of hermeneutics is that we uh, stick with the plain and the clear and we interpret the difficult in, in the light of the clear or we, we interpret the obscure in the light of the clear. So is there any question that scripture affirms that God is good, that he's wise, that he's faithful, that he's sovereign? No, there's... Uh, you know, if language means anything, Scripture tells me that that is the nature of who God is. Uh, 
is it possible that I misunderstand the nature of divine goodness? Yes, that's possible. I'm, I have to be open to the possibility that my conception of what love looks like, goodness, wisdom, and so on look like, it is uh, malformed in part because of the noetic effects of the fall, in other part because of the cultural uh, situation that I'm in, my own personal finiteness and limitations, and so on. So I'm always open to scripture reshaping my thinking about who God is. On the other hand, it may simply be that at the end of the day, I'm going to have to say, you know, I don't really understand how all the pieces fit together uh, with uh, the, the Canaanite genocide. Now, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that example, but let's just assume that I struggle with the ethics of that and say, you know, I don't understand how it all fits together, but that's only a comment about me. That's only a comment about the accumulated scholarship of finite fallen humans who have made an attempt to understand that. It is no comment about God himself. So, because I'm a follower of Jesus, and because I believe that we ought to believe all that the prophets have spoken, that we ought to, that it's a fool, I'm a fool if I don't believe them, then I'm just going to say, well, I believe it, and I don't, even though I can't under, understand or explain it. If somebody says that's checking your brain at the door, my response is, no, it's not checking my brain at the door. My brain thoroughly investigated and decided I couldn't explain it. What's being checked at the door is human autonomy and sovereignty. I do not stand as a judge over God. God stands as a judge over me. And when I don't understand him, I'm going to say, that's on me, that's not on him. So, uh, this is the posture that a that the Enlightenment abhors. It's a posture that says, no, everything must be rationally explainable to the finite human mind to be believed. And uh, God does not accommodate that. In fact, I would say that God uh, intentionally embedded difficulties into the text as a stumbling block for those who insist on 100% rational revelation. Instead, what he provides is a sufficiently rational revelation that uh, he, he can and does and will hold people accountable for when they stand before him. And I don't remember whether it was which uh, his, historical skeptic or atheist was who said, that when I stand, if I stand before God, it turns out that there was a God, I'll say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence. Well, when he stands before God, what God will do is show the, the vacuousness of that claim, the speciousness of that claim, that in fact, here was a man who was hiding his own mind from the adequate and sufficient evidence that uh, is a platform for faith. So, so if, if I were to maybe try to summarize that as, as, as 
tightly as I could. I guess I'm what I'm what I might say is that as we read scripture, if we come across um, a depiction of God that seems unfamiliar, we can rely on what we know about God um, while not in any way, um, well, while keeping in mind that the God that we do know in Jesus looks at the Old Testament and says, this is inspired, this is the word of God, this is the scripture, and that our uh, our perception of who God is can also be uh, we, we need to keep that open to being tweaked by Scripture itself because he inspired it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be prolix just for the sake of expanding the verbiage, but look at Jesus in Revelation. Jesus, look at Jesus in Pilate's Hall. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight. Well, how can Jesus say that if if fighting is antithetical to his own nature. Uh, how can Revelation portray Jesus as coming on a war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and destroying the nations? Or how can Jesus describe himself as the Son of Man who will say to the goats on his right, depart from me into the eternal fire designed for the devil and his angels? Any picture of Jesus in the New Testament that somehow puts him at odds with the picture of God in the Old Testament is a selective reading of the New Testament that is picking and choosing the parts of it that correspond to a preconceived... Who's the guy who released a two-volume set of books recently? Boyd? Boyd, yeah. Greg Boyd's thing about the, the pinnacle of Christ's revelation of the Father takes place on the cross, and that somehow this is all self-giving love, and that there's no anger, there's no wrath. Greg, the New Testament doesn't make the cross the canon inside the canon by which everything is normed. Paul doesn't do that. No other author does that. The whole, the whole proposition, the whole project itself is flawed from the very beginning. The fact that Jesus is the final revelation of the Father, the capstone doesn't mean that we've gotten rid of everything else that the capstone holds together. So, as I listen to myself saying these things, it seems to me like I'm presenting this as though it's a lot easier than scholars the world over really think it is, which would imply then that I have a truncated and ill-formed understanding of the complexity of the problem. And uh, while there's always the possibility that that's the case, I've read widely across the whole range of answers to this topic, and what I consistently find is that people who reject Scripture's self-claims do not do so because the text is inherently uh, self-contradictory, that there are actually antimonies in Scripture. You know, I've listened to all of Peter N's arguments, and time after time, what I see is he rejects plausible, harmonistic readings in favor of antithetical readings because he has a preconceived commitment to 
the very thing that he says we shouldn't have a preconceived commitment to. He says we've got to allow the scripture to define what inspiration looks like for us, and yet he won't let the text statements about itself stand. So, you know, from atheist to left-leaning evangelical, there's a, a consistent unwillingness to grapple with the full range of the, the text of Scripture. Sure, or, or, or even just to give it the benefit of the doubt. That, that there, there's always a, a willingness to uh, give a, a, a possible contradiction a lot more weight than it, ha than it actually has. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, and actually. I'll, I'll say one thing slightly off topic. As, as you mentioned, Boyd, uh, Boyd's notion that we make the cross the uh, the center of, of how we understand God. Uh, as I read him saying that, I kept thinking, okay, you know, the cross where 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 the atonement happens, where where our sins are punished, <laughs> and and uh, and then then I, and then I of course thought, okay, I know what Boyd's going to do. He's going to say yes, but you also have to accept my view of the atonement for this to work. So, <laughs> um, anyway, well, Doctor Philip Brown, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Do this. this is helpful for me to kind of uh, clear out some of the uh, some of the cobwebs as I've been reading some of these guys and, and try to put all these put all this data together. Uh, and uh, I, I think it'll be helpful for, for listeners as well. So thank you so much. Oh, hey, it's my pleasure. Blessings to you. You too. And your, and your listeners. Mm -hmm.